This is the day that I don't want to ever end. I could not have, uh, can tell you that as you reflect on this day, and I last night didn't get a lot of sleep, I have just been totally engrossed in Psalm 67 and in this passage, really didn't want the study to finish, didn't want the study to end. I, I think I could have spent another two years just looking at this passage and looking at Psalm 67. I'm going to work on that a little bit today at 2 o'clock in our, in our service, and we'll look at that. But I have basked in the glory of God and, and, and very, very, very thankful for what God is doing. Uh, this is God's amazing blessing on my life. I am a very blessed man that I get to be a part, a small part of this, to see um, mm, this is my dream. It's my dream. It's my dream. To make disciples of all nations. So very thankful and looking forward to spending time with you guys today and um, All right, so let's get started. When we think back over history and over the history of the world, there have been many famous quotes people have made over the years that have been held in high esteem. Quotes that people have said that people have based a lot of their lives on, unfortunately. Uh, for example, Aristotle said, We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. Albert Einstein said, The person who reads too much and uses his brain too little will fall into lazy habits of thinking. <laughs> Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. Abraham Lincoln, a house divided against itself cannot stand. You know, those are famous quotes but they all pale in comparison to this quote. <laughs> to these words from Jesus on the mountain in Galilee. Words that have turned the world upside down. A commission from the king to his servants, telling them to go out and make disciples of him from all the nations. These are some of the final words given by our Lord to the 11 apostles before he ascended. It appears that this happens uh, in a secluded place, just him and the 11, after being in Jerusalem and appearing to many of them already. He has them walk some 50 miles, we'll talk about that in a little bit, to Galilee, and then walk back and he meets them again. Luke 24 talks about him giving this commission again. It gives more depth to it in Luke 24. And this is probably one of the most commonly preached passages in all the Bible, right? I would imagine most of you have heard this passage preached numerous times. Today I want to try to take a fresh look at what Christ was saying when he gave this commission to his disciples. My prayer is, is that we will all uh, be reminded of our Lord's desire for each of us 
This is what he desires for each of us in this building and for the gears as they minister in Taiwan. It is called the Great Commission because it is one of the clearest and most profound calls to action Jesus gave to his disciples. And it came after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. This must become and did become the eleven's ministry goal. And this must be our goal too. God used these 11 men and the pursuit of obeying this commission to turn the world upside down. So today, let's look at a closer look or take a closer look at this passage. The key pass or the key elements of this great commission break down into four elements. There's four key elements of the great commission we will examine today in order for us to know what the Lord's desire for all of us is. Notice the background That's found in verses 16 and 17 of the Great Commission. The foundation of the Great Commission. The command of the Great Commission. And the encouragement of the Great Commission. Let's make our way down through this passage. First, we start with the background of the Great Commission. Notice he says in verse 16, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them. This is one of several appearances Jesus had after his resurrection. His bodily resurrection. We know from Paul that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brethren after his resurrection. Folks, do you understand the implications of the resurrection? (laughs) Jesus rose from the dead bodily. Meaning that the cross was accomplished. And what he did on the cross was finished. And our debts are paid. The resurrection assures that. The resurrection shows that Jesus is God incarnate. And he is the one to be worshipped and honored. And all glory and honor and power should go to him. Look over at 1 Corinthians 15. For I deliver, Paul said to you, as first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve the twelve after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time most of whom remain until now but some have fallen asleep then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles and last of all To the one untimely born, he appeared to me also. That is Paul. So this passage is one of these resurrection appearances of Jesus. And he has them, and we'll see as we go along. I want to look at a couple of components of this background. First, I want you to notice the worshipers. It says in verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him. His appearance brought worship from those as they recognized him and saw who he was. So we see in our passage that the eleven were on the verge of being sent out to make disciples and they were found worshiping Christ. You know, this is a perfect background for making disciples. A heart of worship. Worshippers are disciple makers. He or she is a worshiper of Christ first. And then we make disciples. This is what a person who is truly sharing the good news is all about. 
They're all about proclaiming the excellencies of him who bought us. We are worshipers of Jesus. We are really not ready to share the gospel, ladies and gentlemen, and make disciples of Jesus until we are worshiping him from our heart, day and night, all the time. Worshippers. That's who we are. And then we make disciples. That's what has to happen first. Notice also that they were 11 ordinary men. 11 ordinary men. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. So again, it doesn't include Judas. By this time he's already uh, met his maker. He has died. He committed suicide after rejecting Christ. But the eleven proceed to Galilee. Who are these men that Jesus gave this great commission to? Well, they're just eleven ordinary men. Many of them were just fishermen. There was a tax collector. There was a zealot who desired revelation by fighting, not revolution by the word, until God got a hold of his heart. These were men who the world would not have picked, but Jesus picked them. Twelve or eleven ordinary men. These were the ones who received the Great Commission. The, one of the greatest quotes ever given is given to eleven normal guys. This should all give us hope. Jesus did not pick the wise things of this world to proclaim his glory. Jesus did not pick anything that the world would go, Oh, why don't you pick that fisherman? Let me turn the world upside down with that fisherman. The world would have never done it. He picked the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. He picked the weak things of this world and the lowly things of this world. He picked 11 everyday men commissioned to proclaim his gospel. You know, I think God does this, ladies and gentlemen. God picks normal people, normal everyday Joes, so that it never becomes about the men proclaiming the message. He picks the normal guy, so it's all about him, even in the proclamation. While this commission was initially given to the 11, it it does apply to all of us in the room. Listen, wherever you are, whoever you are, God calls you to make disciples of Christ. We too must be ready to give a defense of the hope that lies within us. And listen to me closely. Our readiness to give the defense of the hope within us is not based on our own worthiness. All elders in the room say, Amen. Our readiness is based fully on who we know, the relationship we have with Christ. God used 11 ordinary men to turn the world upside down by revealing himself to them and making them worshipers of him. And then they're ready to proclaim the good news. Notice also, though they were doubters, literally says, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them. This information is extremely encouraging to me, but not to be used as an excuse by any of us. 
Even the men who lived with Jesus, walked with Him for three and a half years, even those men who saw the great miracles, saw Him walk on water, saw Him calm the seas, saw Him die and resurrected, saw Him raise people from the dead. Still in their humanness there was doubt. There was the struggle of doubt. We know the solution to doubt is what? Trust. Trust in the all-knowing God. But again, trust happens as a result of knowing and experiencing Christ more. And it doesn't happen just in three and a half years. It's a lifetime. It's a lifetime of pursuing Christ. If you say in your heart, oh, I never doubt. Oh. Oh. It kind of makes me want to flinch even thinking about that. It's coming. This is exactly what Jesus did, though. He encouraged the doubters. Jesus came up and spoke to them and encouraged them. Again, this is so encouraging. When we are doubting, we need to pursue Christ because He's the saving Lord and His words and His glory and His truth are what sustain us. It's Him. Knowing Him, that's what encourages our soul when we doubt. He's a saving Lord, a compassionate Lord, a gracious Lord. And these words that He's going to say in the commission are glorious truths and glorious hope. He loves us. He desires for us to bring our doubting hearts to Him and confess it and ask Him, Oh God, help me to trust You. I believe. Help my unbelief. Go to Him. And then notice they were also mountain climbers. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. You say, where's the climbing? It just was a neat little thing, so I wanted to use it. (laughs) It'll make you remember it. (laughs) Finally, notice in the background, we see Jesus had arranged for them to meet at a mountain in Galilee. You know, this perplexed me all week. I've been thinking about this. Why go to Galilee? Why not just visit them again in Jerusalem? I mean, they were there. Remember, you know the story that Jesus sees them that night, and Thomas isn't there, and Thomas doubts, remember? And then seven days later, he shows them again, and he meets them there, and he's met them there, but he has them go to Galilee. Galilee is north, 50 miles or so, a long ways, a lot of walking, especially if they went around, as many of them did. This is a, a long trip just to go up and have Jesus say this, and then guess what? Go back to Jerusalem. Go back to Jerusalem and I'll give you some more. Luke 24. Why? Why Galilee? Well, I think the location pointed to what Jesus was going to expect them to do. Leave the comforts of Judaism and around Jerusalem and go. You're going to Galilee. Galilee was very secular. Galilee was really worldly. Go there. Go north. And by the way, that's the road that it would go. The message would go out north. And you go up on a mountain, and by the way, in Galilee, you go out on a mountain and look out. What are you going to see? Gentiles. Goim. Everywhere. 
Nations everywhere. It's as if he says, come up here, let me show you, look. Now go make disciples of all nations. I wonder if he pointed, I don't know, we'll see when we get to heaven. But I can see how it would work, wouldn't it? These men were commissioned to leave their Jewish traditions and safety and go into the world and make disciples of all nations. So he takes them up there. Notice also the second, the second element, the foundation of the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is what Jesus says to them. And ladies and gentlemen, you can argue with this all you want, but all does mean all here. <laughs> Without exception. <laughs> Jesus' authority was and is over all. He had been given this authority by the Father because he had finished all that the Father had commissioned him to accomplish. When he cried out, finished, it was finished. And he received all glory, honor, and power. And all authority goes to him. This is glorious news, folks. This means Jesus is king already. He has all authority and power right now. The Lord Jesus, his authority over all guarantees glory to God throughout the world. Jesus will be glorified because he's making sure of it. Now I know, I know, when you look out at this world, you watch TV for five minutes, you've got... These doubts and these thoughts will come into your mind and you will say, Jesus is an authority? How? Jesus has all authority over this earth and heaven right now? How? Have you thought that? Ladies and gentlemen, I know he is has all authority. You know why? Because he said it. (laughs) And Jesus doesn't lie. He has it. Jesus is Lord. And he is winning. I think it's very interesting for us to understand that what we see does not give us the full picture. (laughs) It's very interesting. He takes them to this secluded place up on a mountain in Galilee with just 11 guys and says, all authority has been given to me. I mean, I I don't know about you guys, but if all authority was given to you, what would you do? Come on in, everybody. Come on in. Pull on in here. Let me announce something. (laughs) I'm the authority over all of you. I have authority over everything. He goes to Galilee, up on a mountain, with 11 people. Why? I think there's also an element of this idea that God gets glory by being proclaimed by 11 ordinary men, and he turns the world upside down the way he wants to, not the way a man would do it. God takes and shows his glory the way he decides to show his glory. 
believe it or not, He needs none of us in the room. But by His grace, He chooses to use us. All glory, honor, and power to the King. How sovereign is Jesus over this world? It says, as sovereign as He is in heaven. (laughs) Folks, Christ's sovereign authority is the foundation of all that we do. And he wanted them to understand this. Ladies and gentlemen, they were going to be persecuted. They needed to know that he was still in control. He was going to be mistreated. They were going to be mistreated, mocked. People were going to call him crazy. But he wanted them to know that he was in control. His authority makes our submission an imperative, doesn't it? His authority makes our success a guarantee. That's a wild thought. Now, I know success is not determined by us, though. Be careful. Success is determined by what God says. His authority makes our ministry fruitful. His authority makes our eternal protection sure. How do I know that I can't lose my salvation? Because Jesus has all authority. How do I know that his word will not return void? Because Jesus has all authority. How do I know that he will be glorified? Because he has all authority. If a king tells a soldier to go and attack an enemy's camp, and the king is already in control of the other person's camp, the enemy's camp, then victory is what? Sure, unless he's trying to tell, teach the soldier a lesson. And then sometimes he lets the enemy win to teach the soldiers to depend on him. Now, this does not mean King Jesus always wants us to win every battle, right? It must mean he wants us to win and he wants to win the war. And his eternal perspective guarantees this. Again, as I said last week, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because he is in all authority. He has all authority. He will win. If the gears, God forbid, go to Taiwan And the 15 that they minister to stays 15 for the next 20 years. Jesus is still king. And he's still winning. It's not based on our outward externals. It's based on the king and his decision. Because he's all authority. Has all authority. But I will tell you this, if the king wants representatives from every tribe, tongue, people group to worship him, guess what? (laughs) There will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, guaranteed. You know what's really funny? God gives you a glimpse into his decrees before they happen. You know why? Look at Revelation 5. (laughs) This is talking about, this is talking about, Future events. <laughs> this has not taken place yet. 
This is God telling you and giving you a glimpse of what heaven's going to look like in the future. And in Revelation 5, 9, it says this. And they sang a new song saying. Now that's, that says they sang. This is what they did. They sang it. But when is it happening? Has it happened yet? No, this hasn't happened yet. But he's talking about it as if it's in all past tense. He says, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus wins. You know why? Because he has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's already determined his victory. <laughs> He's already decreed it's all going to happen. That's a wild thought, isn't it? Jesus' authority is, guarantees his victory. Do you think you need to know that if you're going to be commissioned to go tell people about him that hate him? Oh, yeah. You need to know it. And it needs to be firmly rooted in your heart. And that's why he says it before he even gives the commission. The foundation of the command is that Jesus is Lord. It makes sense, doesn't it? Now we get to the command. Notice. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. So, so, what I want to do with this is I just want to ask and answer seven questions quickly so that we can understand what this command is that Christ wants us to be all about. First, look at it. What is the main command? At first glance, we look at this and we say, go is the main command, but it's not. Therefore, and make disciples. That's the main command. Make disciples of all nations. Let's look at it. So what's a disciple? If that's the main command, make disciples, what is it? Well, a disciple is a follower of Christ, right? A disciple is a person who has been transformed and has been declared right with God, and thus they seek to follow and obey their master, the Lord. That's a disciple. Okay? Matter of fact, look over at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. Jesus says to his disciples and gives what a disciple looks like. He says this. If anyone wishes to come after me. In other words, if anyone wishes to what? Be my follower. To be a disciple. Right? If anyone wishes to be my, come after me, he must what? Deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That's talking about the transfiguration most likely. The reality is this. Anyone who wishes to come after me must deny himself 
and take up his cross and follow me. That's a disciple. Now, let's look at another one, Luke 14. Now, large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, man, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Wow. Okay, there you go. Mr. Gear, here's your commission. You ready? Go to Taiwan and make those. <laughs> make those. This seems impossible, doesn't it? I mean, just stand out on campus at USF and announce this. Hey, you need to love Jesus more than your parents, everybody else, and even your own self. You need to be willing to die to follow him. By the way, that's not what those preachers on campus say. They just say, clean up the outside of the cup and you'll be okay. No, rather, you've got to love me more than anyone, even yourself. That's what a disciple is? Okay, anybody in here saying, how? How do I do that? How do I make those? You've forgotten something. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ. He can do the impossible. And all believers say, who is the object of our efforts? Notice it says, all nations. All nations? God is about saving a representation of all nations. This is what God has been like, and God will be like this forever. Our God is all about saving a diversity of people. I'm so glad our God is a lover and savior of all types of people, aren't you? Every tribe and tongue and people, he is a glorious savior. We were reminded of this in our reading of this week in our Old Testament reading, if you're reading along with us, as Jonah proclaims the gospel to Nineveh, and Nineveh repents. God is a gracious lover of all nations, even in the Old Testament. Oh, the glory of this truth, isn't it? Remember, Nineveh was a barbaric people. They would... They would bury their people, they would bury their enemies uh, in the sand out in the desert up to their necks and leave them for the buzzards to eat them. You can see why Jonah didn't want to go there. I hate those people. What did God do? He saved a generation. It appears the whole city repented, turned to Christ, turned to God. Wow, isn't that amazing? God is about saving people all over the world. How do we accomplish this impossible task of making disciples? How do we do it? Well, I think it says it in the text. The empowerment of God 
and the weapon of God. Now listen, the empowerment of God, the therefore, is therefore a reason. Go therefore and make disciples. The therefore points back to what? All authority. Make disciples. Make followers of me. Make people that are willing to sacrifice their life for me to put me above everything else. Make those. How? He'll do it. He'll accomplish it through you as you proclaim this truth. That's great truth. Isn't that wonderful? It's not up to you to come up with some slick argument to cause somebody to actually sell everything they have and follow God. Can you imagine how, what kind of sales pitch you'd have to do? Can you imagine if it was based like David was selling rainbow vacuum cleaners? That was, that was nothing compared to hate your mother, father, brother, sister for this man that died on a cross and rose from the dead that you have not seen. Love him more? Love this guy that was here 2,000 years ago? No, you can't see him, but he was here. And he died on a cross and took all your punishment on him and rose from the dead three days later and went to heaven and he's now in charge of everything. Follow him. Hate your mother compared to that. That's tough. No way. I'm thinking, poor Miss Gear. <laughs> Sorry. That's not what that means. You know that, right? Miss Gear's here. And I'm like, oh, man, I should have picked this first. This is not good. This is not what he's saying. He loves Jesus more than you, though. And I think she wants that. As hard as this is. Oh, what a glorious truth. Folks, we can count on it because he is powerful. And his word is the gospel and it's the weapon of God. It changes lives. To hear this glorious truth of who he is and what he did, it sounds crazy to the world, but to those that he is drawing, it is the most glorious news in all the world. We all go, wow, Jesus, you're amazing. Yes. You love me? Sure. You're better than anything. I'll sell everything and go to Taiwan. Because you're glorious. You're better. You're satisfying. Jesus said as much that this message was what moved people in 24, Luke 24. He developed that great commission and tells them what the message is. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sin would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Folks, think about this for a second. We've got this glorious truth that Christ died, rose from the dead on the third day and it must be embraced fully. And that is what we proclaim. We must preach and proclaim repentance. Turning from the world and embracing Christ alone. He is your only hope. Turn from, turn to Him. And that is the message that we proclaim. And it is a powerful message. It is the message that moves us to do whatever He wants us to do. And to live to honor Him. Fifth question, when do we do this? 
Well, it says go. And I'm going to get into a little bit of grammar here because I want you to, I want you to get the point. This is translated in, in many of your versions as go, and, and, and it does have somewhat of a command feel to it. But if you look at, in the original language, it has the idea of more than this. And let me explain. It, it's literally, and I know I'm using big words, but you'll get them. You can write it down, go home, and look in your English you know, go online, look up Wikipedia, and look up these words, and you'll get it. It, it. You'll understand as I go along. It's a passive participle. It's a past tense passive participle. All of you go, yay, what's that? <laughs> well, a, a, a passive verb is a, it has the idea of receiving the action, not doing the action. For example... A ball was hit by the bat. Okay, that's a, the ball received the action. That was a passive action, being hit. It was hit. Okay? That's the same kind of verb here. It's a passive. It's not an active. The ball didn't go and hit the bat. It wasn't active. It was passive. Okay? It's kind of tricky. It's passive action. A go, that's passive. Think about that for a second. Can you go and be passive? Go! <laughs> I'm going. No. <laughs> no, you can't. How do you do that? He's making a point. It's also a past tense. It's already happened. In relation to the main verb, which is make disciples. Literally, you could translate this Having been made to go, go. Having been made to go, go. And make disciples. It has this idea of still it's tied to the imperative to make disciples. But you're being made to go. And as you're going, as you have been made to go, make disciples. And what's that mean? Again, it is making a huge point of God's sovereignty. That God is working in your circumstances to bring about making disciples. And as you have been made to go, you will then make disciples where you are and what you're doing. <laughs> Man, if you've been close to the unfolding of uh, the gears going, I've been like, whoa. It's like as if, are you not, as, there are times where I just go, no way. We've had money given to them just to help. It's great to pay for that class that we weren't expecting just pops in there. Woo! And it wasn't any of you. Just shows up. Amazing stuff. They were even, they were even accidents. Accidents with money that then when we told them, the person told us it was an accident, they said, no, no, just go ahead and keep it anyway. Really? Yeah, just keep it anyway. Wasn't an accident. Wasn't an accident. He's unfolded everything. Man, I saw it yesterday, just even in the ordination. You're sitting there, I know you call it an interrogation. He's sitting there, he's like, oh, 
just so, this is going to be brutal. And he's like, man, I'm, I'm worried about bringing back all these verses. Man, it was cool just to watch God work through you, brother. It was just, just all that stuff that he had learned and God had worked in his heart. It was just whoosh, awesome. God is a, an amazing God. And he is unfolding and laying out things all over, all the time. And ladies and gentlemen, it's not just the gears, it's your life too. Do you understand that every event that's happening in your life, these aren't random chance accidents. You know, you go to work and the person says, you go to church? Yeah, why'd you ask me that? Uh, just, you you know, just wondering. <laughs> Don't get defensive. <laughs> yeah, I go to church. Do you believe in Jesus? Y yeah. Well, I've been reading about him, but I don't know anything about him. Maybe you could help me. What are you talking to me about this for? You know, this isn't, I didn't take evangelism class. Make disciples. As you're going, God is orchestrating his work to bring glory to his name. He's using you where you are to make disciples. Glorious truth, isn't it? He is literally moving you through his universe. He's working on this world. He's making you do what he wants you to do in order for you to make disciples. And no, that does not mean that we are robots. We do have responsibility. And God is sovereignly in control. And you say, how do I reconcile those two? Good luck. No, not good luck, good sovereignty. <laughs> there is no such thing as luck. The, rea the reality is this. Try to reconcile those two things. It's going to be hard. But just know that it's happening. And as you have been made to go, make disciples. That's what you're to do. Make disciples. Make people that are willing to lay down their life for Christ. Yes, that's your role. That's your job. What does this discipleship making look like? Well, he gives some ideas. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus gave two practical outworkings of discipleship 101, baptizing and teaching. From the text, baptism appears to be a part of being a disciple, not a pre-disciple experience. I mean, it develops the main verb, make disciples. So, having people be baptized is part of that. Baptism is the person and work. It's into the person and work of the triune God. Jesus is saying that baptism is, is a symbol of the saving work of the triune God. Do it. Obey God. Obey Christ. Now, it's the, the baptism doesn't save you, but you are... Being a follower of Christ, if you obey that, when you are baptized, after you have believed, you are obeying Christ. It is the obedient act that reflects the heart of a true disciple. That's one of the first acts, often, of people to get baptized. 
They get baptized, and it's like immediately. I remember even when I first became a believer, um, I admit my obedience was poor, and my servitude was poor. But um, I remember asking them, they, they said, do you want to get baptized? And I was like, why? Well, because God says to get baptized. Oh, sure. I'll get baptized. Why? Because my heart had said, okay, that's what i got to do. i got to obey God. So it's, a, it's one of those acts. Now, again, it doesn't have to happen always immediately. There are circumstances, but it's the heart behind it that you want to do it. And as we work through getting a baptismal, you can baptize quicker, hopefully. It's an obedient act to show that you love Christ and you want to obey Him and you're committed to Him. And then it says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. It says, all that I commanded you. This is a lifetime of information, folks. (laughs) All that Jesus commanded them is recorded in the Word. Think about this, man. To know all this is not just something that's going to happen like, bonk, you got it. Making a disciple takes a lot of time. Do you understand that? You know, I often think that people think that take this passage and make it just about making a convert. Do you understand that that's not what this is talking about? Making a convert? Say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give them some words, and then, you know, if they accept it, great. And if they don't, fine, no big deal. I did my job. On to the next person. Personally, I don't see how you reconcile that with making a disciple. Now, I do think you can plant seeds and things like that, but I think and often it takes a lot more work to make a disciple than it does to make a convert. Now, what I mean by that, well, you can get somebody, and, and God will work, and they will be converted, and they will do this, but then you send them off to do all the hard work of getting rid of all that dead man that they're hanging on to, that body of death. Ladies and gentlemen, whoo! And Ryan, this is it. This is where the rubber hits the road. When you spend days and nights agonizing over people's soul, it is a painful thing to make a disciple. Seeing God work. Hard work. Weeping with those who weep. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. Pointing out their idols in their hearts that they must abandon for the true love of Christ. That's making a disciple. And it's painful. But it's worth it. (laughs) And it's a glorious thing because our king gets all the glory. I think we need to all be careful, obviously, of thinking that one role is more important than the other in that making disciples. Because after all, what it, what it takes to make a disciple is the whole church. It doesn't take just one person. Do you understand? There is no way that one person can make a disciple by himself. I think God intentionally set it up where pastors and teachers and evangelists would all work together to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to make us look right, 
You know, Mark and I and Ryan and, and, and Ronaldo are all very different. We're all very different, right? But, but God uses all of us together to help make disciples. But what's really amazing is he uses all of you too. You say, well, Mike, I'm not, I'm not talking to anybody. Are you praying for some people? It's part of making a disciple. Well, Mike, all I do is plunge toilets. <laughs> Are you making a disciple? Yes. I don't usually brag on my brother, but this is one of those that I see the grace of the Lord for many, many weeks. Did you know that he was the toilet plunger? And you say, how is that making a disciple? Well, he was the toilet plunger. And everybody else got to come in and worship. Grace, brother. Grace. All grace. Making disciples. Plunging toilets. Nursery workers. So many of them out there. Even the people that give. People that are giving... And they don't announce it. That's good. What's your role to play? Prayer warrior, financial supporter, steward of the facilities, behind the scenes encourager. Maybe you come up to people and just say, how you doing? I love you. I'm praying for you. Nursery workers, Sunday school teacher, counselors, evangelists, missionaries. that go plant churches all over the world. All of us have a role in this important task of making disciples. The task sometimes appears to be impossible. The participants or helpers sometimes hard to find. The world and it evil and its evil often appears to be formidable, doesn't it? The field often seems overwhelmingly big. Do you realize, folks, do you realize how many people are on this planet? Billions of people. What is it, more than 7 billion now? 7 billion people. It's a lot of zeros. And you're talking maybe... A billion? Maybe a billion? Probably not. Probably closer to 500 million. No Christ. 6.5 billion people dying and going to hell. Overwhelming, isn't it? Shocking. Horrifying. The task seems almost impossible, doesn't it? But Christ is on his throne. 
he is redeeming a people for his own possession. These words are sobering, aren't they? We know that the Gear family are going to an island of roughly 23 million. That's what I got. And only 2.6% roughly are Protestant. Is that about right? So well over 22 million people on this little island. How big is the island roughly? 16th largest population per area in the world. He's going to a hub of 22 million people that need to know the gospel. Are you overwhelmed yet? (laughs) The task is huge. Impossible. But it's as if Jesus knew the disciples looking out from that hill on Galilee would say the same thing. This is impossible. You've told us what a disciple is. You've told us who we've got to go to. These goyim. These Gentiles. What are we going to do? The encouragement of the Great Commission. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Oh, what glorious truth. I know I'm going over, but I don't care. I told you it's going to be a long day. Just be ready. Listen, these words are beautiful words. They're glorious words. And it isn't just a Skype relationship. (laughs) Where it's breaking up in our face. We're doing FaceTime in Taiwan. And all of a sudden he freezes. It ain't that kind of relationship. Jesus says, And lo, I myself, emphatic in the Greek, am with you always. You know, this is what he did all the way through the Old Testament too when he was dealing with his people. Every time they went into a battle or any time they had anything major, he said what? I am with you. Joshua 1 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Oh, what glorious truth. We can't go with you to Taiwan. But somebody better is going. So much better than us. And he's with you all the time. And he loves you. And he cares for you. And he's in control. Be strong and courageous, my dear ones. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For your word. Thank you for the encouragement that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you that you love us. 
And that though the task before us be impossible, you are with us. We can trust you. We can be still and know that you are God. We worship you. We ask that you make a great people of worshipers for you, of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.